Hi everyone, this is Chris with the Theotech Podcast, and today I'm joined by my friend Kami Owens, who is a pastor at Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church, and also a senior software engineer at Google. He lives with his wife and eight children in Sunnyvale, California. Conley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks for reaching out to me about your new book, uh, The Dorian Principle, and I look forward to diving into the guts of that. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit of background about how you got started working on this book project, and also how were you able to work on this while juggling having eight kids and doing a full-time job at Google and being a pastor? <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't a pastor as I was uh, writing the first parts of this book. So this was part of my MDiv thesis. Um, a lot of the a lot of the study that went into the book. So that's kind of where I place the time for it. Where I found the time is different because I, I was working full time. So yeah, my wife uh, helps out a lot. You know, she really enables a lot of the work that I do. Mm. And then yeah, I would take off. You know, one day every week or maybe every two weeks, and then. Uh, half of Saturday. And that's how I worked out seminary, but that seminary took me about eight years to finish. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I was doing this in any quick amount of time. It was just really like, you know, if you've got, if you've got a a goal that you want to accomplish, you just got to bite that elephant off, you know, one piece at a time or however the saying goes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the strategy. Wow. Well, that's a very supportive wife you have and family. And I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Eight years of Work, of taking your hobby time, I suppose, and, and putting it into your, your MDiv. That's really cool. Right. So um, what motivated you to study this topic? Uh, I know that it, uh, for those who are listening, I haven't introduced it yet. I think Conley's the best one to talk about it, but I read the book, Dorian Principle, and it talks about how to fundraise and finance ministry in a way that is faithful to uh, to Jesus. And so I think I'd love to hear about your background and like why that became your, your thesis topic and how you developed it into this book. Yeah, so the answer is very simply open source. You know, I I spent a lot of time uh, in college working with open source. You know, kind of absorbing a lot of the ideologies that surround open source. Uh, eventually, a lot of my ideology has shifted some, but you know, it kind of opened me up to realizing that this traditional model of imposing an artificial scarcity on something, you know, so that you can operate in the supply and demand uh, model, isn't always ideal for you know business or software. And then you look at ministry, which should have totally different prerogatives. And, you know, they're kind of uh, operating in the same in the same kind of mindset where I'd seen that software and a lot of technology fields had sort of advanced in this area, thinking more uh, innovatively about how they should deal with the flow of information and uh, uh, content, et cetera. Uh, it seemed like the church had a lot to benefit from that as well. So I, I had a a bit of a distaste for the way a lot of ministries would fundraise essentially Mm -hmm. by locking down content and selling it. And there was one distaste, you know, as an engineer who has come to these convictions about how good engineering is done. And there's this other part of distaste with as a Christian, you know, feeling that this isn't really the most uh, open-handed offer of the gospel, but it's, it, it wasn't something where I felt like, I could bind other people's consciences about it. You yeah. know, I would get like flustered in conversations, but I wouldn't, but at the same time, I, I could never come out and say like, I've got a Bible verse that says that, you know, we've got to start thinking differently about these things. But then as I was studying the Bible, cause I, I do study the Bible uh, quite a bit for um, a Bible study I lead at Google. Uh, and uh, I came across third uh, John seven and eight, which says for they have gone out for the sake of the name, not accepting anything from the Gentiles Therefore, we ought to support people like these. We may be fellow workers for the truth. So you have these missionaries who deserve to be financially supported because they did not sell what they were preaching, right? They didn't take money from those whom they were sent to. And I, I started mm-hmm. thinking about this and I realized that there's a, there's something here. There's something about us as missionaries. Maybe we should think about books as, as missions. Maybe we th- should mm-hmm. think about like all teaching, you know, under this under this guise of missions. And that really reshape how things are are funded. And so uh, I also saw that Second Corinthians had something to say about this. And I thought, okay, well, eventually I'm going to, you know, eventually I'm going to study this for my thesis. I'm going to write it all down. You know, it might, it might only be those two passages and then I can make some speculative applications about how this would apply mm. to the church and maybe open source and things like that. Yeah. But then as I, then as I began studying, I realized just how frequently the Bible talks about this. I mean, Paul just nonstop talks about ministry fundraising. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
yeah, it's even in the words of Christ, it's in the Old Testament, it's just all over the place. And so there was a lot there. And I I feel like I initially went out to, you know, write a little bit of exegesis, you know, a little bit of stuff about scripture, and then a lot of speculative application. And what I ended up doing was, you know, writing a whole lot about what scripture says, and then, you know, only a few chapters on on application that don't go very deep because, you know, I don't want to distract people from accepting the principle as it is. That is a, a great backstory. And there's so many threads that I, I want to explore. Um, one of them is to frame it. You said that you were influenced by open source, but since that time, you've kind of shifted from some of those philosophies and beliefs. And by open source, I, I assume you're referring both to like Richard Stallman's free software foundation kind of things, copy left. And you're also talking about more maybe Linus Torvald's uh, philosophy around open source uh, Linux kind of. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I was, uh, I was a fairly diehard Stallmanite at some point, you know, Stallman okay. came in, uh, he stayed in, he stayed in my bedroom for two nights one time. <laughs> uh, you're not joking. You're serious. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I hosted him at Virginia Tech. Uh, he came and gave a talk, and I gave him my room, so he had a place to stay. Um, yeah, so yeah, I used to I used to feel pretty strongly that copyleft was the way to to get um, get other people on board with this. Uh, there's a lot of problems with that. I think the the initial thing that started concerning me was that well, if you have multiple copyleft licenses they're generally incompatible. Like occasionally they'll you know make some updates so that they're compatible, but there's you know, as a bit of an idealist, there felt something like really unideal about having a monopoly all around a single copyleft license. Yeah. And then uh, considering it some more, uh, just realizing that, well, there are a lot of restrictions being imposed that I'm not sure are right to impose. And then even further, so in the 26 and 2016, I was, uh, uh, I was disappointed with the way uh, the, uh, not the election itself necessarily, but the uh, campaigns had gone. And I started really thinking uh, that I needed to revisit my political theology. Hmm. And so as I went back and, and explored my political theology, I, I came from a, a biblical perspective. Now I'm, I'm still open to, I'm, I'm still trying to refine these ideas, but uh, coming from a biblical perspective, I've become a lot more libertarian and I'm I've seriously doubted the government's right to have any sort of um, intellectual property laws beyond trademark. Trademark is obviously uh, something different than uh, copyrights and patents. But um, so anyway, yeah, if if uh, people have rights, and that's kind of the foundation of the government enforcing things, and people have property rights, then the only way that intellectual property is something that the government should be uh, uh, enforcing is if it is truly property. But even the way the law is framed is that it's not truly property. Even the statute of ban, which copyright is a very recent thing. A lot of people don't realize that it's only been around since 1710. And uh, even the original copyright law, the statute of ban and modern uh, U.S. copyright law make it clear that it's very pragmatic. You know, it's for the sake of uh, in of encouraging creative works. Mm -hmm. And it's also not to perpetuity, right? Physical yeah. property lasts to perpetuity. Uh Intellectual property, it's, you know, 50 years plus the life of the author, 100 years, whatever, you know, the different yeah. rules are. And uh, anyway, all these things kind of concede that it's not it's not really property in the same sense. And then moreover, if you think about what property is and property is something that you, you know, possess by some kind of reasonable means, someone who has taken in ideas like, let's say, a patent idea right into their mind because someone else has spoken it to them, do they not then own that and is not then the government violating their property right to the the own idea that they have in their head, given that so someone else had told them about this idea, mm. right? And so it, rather than rights being enforced, are rights actually being violated by intellectual property law? Mm -hmm. So yeah, at this point, I'm you know either a copyright minimalist or abolitionist. Uh, so yeah, a lot a lot has kind of changed with how I think about these things. But I, so that, I have... that's how you've actually moved past copyleft because copyleft was for the, for our listeners who aren't familiar, copyleft is like the GPL three license, those kinds of things that say that you can use the code. You have access to the code. You have the right to it, but any modifications you make must also be published in an open source way. So it's kind of coercive because it, it gives you the freedom to do things with it, but then you must actually publish those things under the same license. Whereas like an MIT license would be, you can do whatever you want with it. I don't care if you publish it or not, just take it and use it. Um, and so you've moved past even copyleft, which uses copyright law to force people to kind of promote its own values and beliefs to something where he's like, you think copyright itself could be abolished or should only be restricted to trademarks? 
Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, thank you for that clarification. <laughs> I got to jump past a lot of that. We're just um, in the same so context, but yeah. our, my listeners may not know. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, and this is this is a little independent from my book. There's a lot that I uh, there's a lot that I felt more comfortable saying in the book because of these ideas that I have going on in the background. So I go ahead and disclose them in an appendix, appendix C. Mm. Um, it's just like a page and a half of, uh, you know, where I'm coming from politically on these things. Yeah. However, I think that the the principle that I put forward about ministry requires that at least ministers abandon uh, typical um, enforcement of copyright, mm -hmm. if not all people, you know, given these these other ideas that I've got going on in the background. I remember how innovative it was when I was a college student. Uh, most most of the teachers I was listening to were charging money a fee for their content because probably just you know going from book form to digital form. You sell a book, you sell a digital copy of the book. Um, but I remember it was really revolutionary. I think that I listened to John Piper back in the day, and he made everything free on in the digital form, and that kind of I think changed the game for a lot of other. Um, ministries where there's like to compete they basically had to also start making things also free but he didn't do it from a more economic perspective as much as like you were saying uh he viewed it as a way that i i want the gospel to reach as many people as possible so why would i make this artificial financial barrier when the digital copy cost me zero to to publish um yeah, yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah back back in the day in the early days of the internet you know i guess some of your listeners probably don't remember this but sermons <laughs> Sermons costed money, and and sometimes you were just buying like the text transcript of the sermon. You weren't even buying the, the recording, the audio recording. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, people weren't sure exactly how they should go about it, and so that was the mode a lot of people take took. And yeah, John Piper was the first one, and that's probably also what made him more popular too. I don't think yeah. he was necessarily that popular before he um, before he started uh, releasing his audio, and yeah. then today all his uh all his books that he's written after a certain date um, are available and at least in some kind of digital format that you yeah. can download. And so uh, something that's interesting too, is that uh, if you look at the book either online or in the paperback copy, um, I've got a list of endorsements. One of the endorsements is from Mo Bergeron, who is the mm. um, pastor slash techie who, who put up all John Piper's sermons and convinced him to do this. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you have you have a friend there. This is really cool. You have Richard Stallman in your house, and you got uh, is it say Mo uh, also? Yeah, Mo Bergeron, people. right? It's a very <laughs> interesting mix there. Yeah, one one other uh, interesting endorsement I have is from uh, Will Norris, who's he's my former manager at Google, but uh, okay. he's now head of open source at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, yeah, that's awesome. So to, uh, actually, uh, maybe because you you had that, we can segue here a little bit, and we want to get to the book itself. But yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what's it like for you? I think many people are wondering when, you know, when they when they see the big tech titans, what is it like to be a Christian in these companies? And so your, your former manager obviously was a believer if he endorsed your book. And uh, you are also at Google. He's at Twitter now. What's it like navigating that cultural, I guess, that cultural intersection between the tech world and uh, and your faith as a Reformed Baptist and, and all those things? What's that like? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of aspects to it. I've always been a little more open about my faith than I think most people are. A, a lot of people, uh, you know, get very concerned. They're going to be thought about differently, but honestly, it's, it's not nearly as bad as people imagine. You know, if you start, if you start being open, you know, people, when they're interacting with you, mm -hmm. uh, because they're, because they're talking to you face to face and rather, you know, just viewing you from afar, a lot of times that really, um, mitigates any kind of impressions that they have about Christians. I know that, you know, in general, a lot of people think very poorly of, uh, of, uh, yeah, in Silicon Valley, you know, in general, people don't think much of faith necessarily, mm. but honestly, a lot of people also assume that, you know, if you're a Christian, that a lot of times they'll just assume that it's, um, that it's, uh, a cultural thing. And so, and so it gives oh, you a lot okay. of opportunity to, you know, to, to share like what you really believe and to, to, to break a few assumptions that may be being made. And uh, it, it's interesting right now, there's a lot going on right now as different companies are getting larger and a lot of, uh, a lot of practices are becoming more um, uh, not formulated, but uh, ingrained in the way these large companies operate. There's these ERGs, right? Like employee resource groups. I think that's what they're called at other companies yeah. too. But it used to be that religions weren't included among these. Uh, now they're starting to, you know, have like religious ERGs and stuff. And oh. so that's a, that's a really interesting thing to navigate. I'm on the uh, there's uh, one there's an ERG at Google for 
for uh, religious folk, and uh, there's a subchapter of it for uh, for Christians, and I'm on the steering committee for that. And so that's a really interesting thing that's to cool. navigate. Uh, in, in part, I have a, I guess, a lot of different thoughts, and other people do about this because a lot of people see this as, okay, now we've got the green light to, you know, like go spread the kingdom kind of militantly or something like that. Mm. And like, well, I'm, I'm always for that, but, <laughs> but uh, I see, uh, I see there being some kind of danger in having this sort of like centralized monopoly of like, Oh, this is the Christian group at yeah. Google. Right. And so, so what I was one of the architects of our constitution we have for this group. And some of the things that I was putting in there were basically limiting like what the steering committee can really do. You know, it's just there to enable to connect, uh, you know, other Googlers who have an interest in Christianity, and then yeah. all the all the actual activity that's more seriously faith oriented that might fall into one camp versus another, that kind of thing. All that's done by just you know the individuals in the group rather than any of the leadership in the group as as leadership. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting things to navigate there, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm hoping I can at some point help other uh, people at other companies who have these sorts of things to navigate that without putting them in a situation where, Oh, once it's this other group that's, you know, in power, they're able to spend the budget money on, you know, these kind of speakers. And once yeah. it's other, <laughs> there's just all kinds of things that can You're happen. Foreseeing how it's going to go. Yeah. Right. That's really challenging yeah. to navigate. As you but, describe <laughs> it, it kind of feels like history is rhyming because it sounded almost like the tech companies are like a modern polis, like a new kind of city or a new kind of city state. And that what you're facing is basically the separation of church and state, quote unquote, the establishment of religion in a tech company where, you know, there are state churches like in Europe, it's still that way. And government money would go to fund those. But then you have other free churches that were just kind of doing their own thing. And you needed to create that political freedom for the free churches to operate. Otherwise, you would have maybe what's happening in Russia right now with the Orthodox Church uh, endorsing, uh, you know, uh, what's happening in Ukraine. So, yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. It, it's very, it's very much like that. Um, not that, not that people wouldn't have freedom to meet in conference rooms or whatever, but yeah. you know, when it comes to, but there are, you know, some, some resources that end up getting, uh, cap, uh, monopolized, you know, by, by the central group. And so anyway, I've, I've frequently referred to the fact that as in going through these discussions that I'm a Baptist. And so I think very differently about, you know, centralizing, uh, mm-hmm. centralizing power over these things. Um, yeah, Baptists have always historically been in favor of of separation of <laughs> and decentralization uh, yeah, yeah exactly pushing power down to the congregational level yeah exactly that's really uh, i mean this these intersections are you know so many ideas that flow from them but let's go ahead and, and we can tie it back so thank you for sharing about what it's like uh being a believer in google for you let's tie it back now to the book because um you use the word dorian and i don't think that most people have even heard of that i hadn't heard of it till i came across your book can you describe that what that word means and where you got it from Right. Yeah. And that part of the idea of using a word people hadn't heard of was that I can kind of invest my own meaning into it without too much baggage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it it's the Greek word that means freely. It's the word that both Jesus and Paul use to describe their proclamation of the gospel, that they offer it freely uh, without uh, anything in return. Uh, not just um, not expecting anything in return, but not accepting anything in return. Not accepting. Okay. Wow. Right. So, uh, so yeah, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 8, uh, freely receive, freely give. But then right in the next two verses, he says a worker is worthy of his food. And in Luke, it says a worker is worthy of his wages. Those are That's the phrase that a lot of people think of when they think about uh, ministers and money. You're supposed to support them because a worker is worthy of his wages. But just before that, Jesus said, freely give. So how do you, how do you put those two together? And a lot of people end up in some kind of... Um, uh, sort of compromised, moderate view where, well, you're supposed to support them, but, you know, not too much, or, you know, it's okay for them to ask for money, just not too much. But that doesn't satisfy either of those polls. Those are very absolute polls, right? One is freely give, don't accept anything. And the other is, um, the other is that they are to be supported. They're supposed to have their full wage. And so- How do you put those together? And I, I believe the distinction that Jesus is making, and even John is making in that verse I mentioned earlier, third John seven and eight, is the distinction between reciprocity and co-labor. So reciprocity would be where uh, the gospel is given, and then someone out of a felt obligation directly back to the minister uh, gives in return, or where someone out of an obligation to God wants to support this work that God is doing through ministers and therefore gives to the minister. So uh, one is this, uh, in the book, there's a lot of diagrams. Uh, One is this horizontal back and forth. The other is this triangle where one is giving to God and 
in giving to God, they give to uh, the individual minister. Mm -hmm. So that's really what this comes down to. And just to give one other illustration, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives a lot of illustrations of this principle. A lot of people take him in 1 Corinthians 9 as just saying absolutely that uh, a minister can charge as much as he wants, but that, or, <laughs> or not necessarily as much as he wants, but you know, a minister can, uh, he's free to charge for, uh, for the gospel. Mm-hmm. However, if Paul's whole point in that passage is that he himself would never do that. So yep. for people to latch onto this word he uses that someone has a right to be funded uh, and, and miss what Paul is saying, uh, they're missing a lot. But anyway, one of the, one of the analogies that Paul gives is to the priesthood in the old Testament. And he said that they were supported. They had a right to the altar. You know, they were supported out of the offerings. They were able to eat the food. Yeah. Uh, they got the ties, etc. But think about how that works. People, the Israelites were not giving to the Levites. Uh, they were not sacrificing to Levites. They were not paying tithes directly to the Levites, right? Their no. tithes, offerings, and sacrifices were all given to God. And then because the Lord was the Levites inheritance, they got to receive of those things. So you have yep. that whole triangle going and to bypass that triangle is idolatry, right? To, to sacrifice directly or to, uh, as the minister, want them to, to give to you directly as though you're the source of the gospel and not God. And that's exactly what the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas did in first Samuel. Um, you know, they didn't want to wait for the meat to be boiled mm-hmm. uh, and offered to God. They wanted the meat directly. Yep. And they wanted the fat portions. They wanted the stuff that was not theirs, actually. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So um, what? So, just to summarize what you said, the difference, the Dorian principle basically uh, shows that the biblically, you could say, argues that the biblically faithful way to fund uh, people who are preaching the gospel is not by reciprocity, which is paying the money in exchange for that preaching or that teaching or that content or that experience, but rather to be giving unto the Lord and viewing what you're giving to that person as a mechanism or a means of by which you're giving to God. Yeah, is that right. the heart? Is that the heart of it? And then for the minister or the person doing that teaching and preaching, they would not be asking for payment. They wouldn't be putting a price tag on their content. They would. What would they be doing actually in in that scenario? Sure. So they. I mean, they might be asking for help. You know, Paul. Uh, Paul often refused money, but he's often, you know, really calling people to some radical obedience with giving. So mm-hmm. you, you see him doing both of those where he'd never accept funds in one context, but he's calling them to really be sacrificially giving in another context. So there's nothing. Uh, yeah. And this is this is more than semantics. I think a lot of people think uh, initially of um, uh, a pastor, you know, working at a church. So let, let's talk about that for a second. Um a pastor working at a church, you might think of him as charging the congregation for his preaching. And, you know, there's a sense in which he's like an employee of the church, et cetera. Yeah. But ultimately what's going on is you have a group of people who want to make sure the gospel is proclaimed from week to week. And one of them, in order to dedicate themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, has to quit their job. You know, they've got to be able to dedicate themselves to this. And so the others, uh, giving of uh, the fruit of their labor so that um, this other can do that. They're, they're all co-laboring together. And if you look at Paul's, uh, his lists of the persecutions that he endured, you know, he has several lists of these persecutions. He's beaten, shipwrecked, et cetera. One of the things he always lists is that he had to work with his hands. And it, I always find that funny that that sits right next to there to getting beaten that he had to work. But uh, here he is giving up part of the fruit of his labor so that he can minister. And so if someone gives up the fruit of their labor, so that he can minister. They're suffering alongside of Paul. They are co-laboring with him. They are co-suffering with him. Yeah. Now, where this becomes more obvious and not just like kind of the way we think about it, um, because in, yeah, in uh, the church context, it's like, well, you know, do you have a consumeristic mindset or a partnership mindset? Yeah. Uh, it becomes a little more apparent in other contexts. For example, uh, public uh, the publishing industry, right? Christian publishing how most books go forward is very much a reciprocity model where you can have this content if you give to me, you know, it's, it's very much, you are giving to me because I'm giving you this rather than out of a desire to serve the Lord and to support ministry uh, giving. It's interesting though. Cause like I realized even in a, you know, in a consumerist setting um, there is the concept of patronage where I want to support the local bit in the pandemic. That was really clear. 
you know, I want to support local businesses who are struggling right now. So I'm going to give them my business or I might, you know, I might tip extra or something like that just to help help my, you know, my community um, to thrive. And in and, and that kind of thing, it it's interesting because even though the, mo- the economic model is still one of quote unquote reciprocity, it actually feels a little bit more transformational than transactional, you could say, because sure. I'm, I'm actually I am actually choosing to like oh, I want to actually support this this business or, you know, this company or, or whatever like that. Um, and I can see like, there's other models like, you know, Patreon, um, where the creator of content, like a, maybe a Christian author could try to ha- directly say, Hey guys, you know, I would like to, this is a vision. I think I want to fulfill if it's from the Lord, if you're called, you know, please help fund this thing so that we can make, we can make this work and put it onto the world that feels more co-labor ish. Um, and so it, it sounds almost as if, and I, I think that diving into that, that gray area of the church is actually the place where a lot of insight might be had because it is kind of confusing. We have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of weight, different ways we can look at what's actually happening there. And there's the literal financial legal way where we actually have a 501 C three nonprofit incorporated with a board that is accountable to the government with a treasurer who's appointed. And, you know, like there's ways that it functions that, uh, that seem very far removed, let's say from Paul, uh, asking these local bodies of believers for like, Hey, you know, please join me in partnership for the gospel. It's like, Hey, I'm not going to take your money because you're viewing it as a, you know, as paying me back for what I did for you. That's not what I want at all. I want your, I want your whole life, like your heart in, in sacrifice and devotion to God. And and if you're going to view it that way, I'll take it, but otherwise I won't, you know, it's so different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, difficult things to deal with there. And yeah, I would agree that Patreon is a good example of, uh, co-labor right except for um sometimes with patreon you have like these uh different supporter levels where you get access to more content if you pay more you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that is very reciprocity oriented um yeah there's a lot of crowdfunding things that i think are are ways that uh christian ministers or you know any kind of a podcast creator you know etc could like fund fund what they're doing um you know as far as the the other kind of patronage that you're talking about you know, just going to a business more frequently during the pandemic or something like that. Uh, yes, there's something, there's something like kind and benevolent about giving someone your business, but at the same time, it's not, uh, yeah, if there's still reciprocity, it still communicates the, the wrong thing. So part of this is, part of this is recognizing that if God is the source of the gospel and our obligation is to him directly and only indirectly, therefore to ministers, uh, do the words and actions of our ministry fundraising communicate that appropriately? And once you have like these sales of content, right, uh, you're you're going beyond that, and you're now and you're now no longer communicating that aspect of the gospel correctly. So I think that um, there's definitely that commercialization that I felt a long time growing up in in Christianity that I feel like has kind of gotten worse since I was a kid. Maybe I'm just an adult now, so I see it more clearly. Um, I. Yeah, I, I remember going to some concerts and stuff and feeling like this is this is just weird how much you're paying for this <laughs> and then for the experience and like it's a yeah. worship concert, but it's like it was a very right. strange experience. Yeah. And there were other artists though who I would go to and it felt actually like an amazing worship service. And I actually went and I wanted to support the artist. And right. so it was it was like the same form, the same shape, but such a different ethos, such a different pathos. Everything is so different in those two models um right and i i, I guess yeah, yeah. charging for a worship service is such an odd thing you know jd greer's church uh like two or three years ago they were charging for their good friday service and it's like man Weird. what are you yeah what are you doing you don't charge for worship now now i get that you know some some christian musicians might just be entertainers that use christian themes like that's not you know the heart of what's being sold is not the gospel it's the entertainment they're they're free to charge for that but when the heart of what you are offering is is the gospel and the essence of it is the gospel um that's where i would say you couldn't charge well you know what's difficult about that that i would ask you is like why uh why why do you draw the line at gospel ministry because obviously god owns everything not only the gospel um and so all of creation is an exchange that we do in trust you know to the glory of god and 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 seeking to be faithful to the way that god has constructed our lives in the world um why do you draw this line between gospel ministry and other forms of Christian service? Like, you know, you're working at Google and you're serving the kingdom through your, through your labor there, uh, both as the leader of that Christian uh, steering committee, but also in your actual coding. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. I, 
and I seem to remember the last time we met in person, uh, we actually had a conversation about this. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that, but, but I think it's, a, yeah, let's yeah. continue the conversation then. Yeah, so God God has made some things holy, right? Like some things truly are set apart. Now there's, and especially in kind of a, a modern theology of work, a, a lot of it's really good, but a lot of it, you know, focuses, for example, on the verse that says, you know, that we're living sacrifice and therefore like all is worship, you know, it, it basically breaks down the barrier between what is holy and not holy. And there there have to be some things set apart where God, you know, especially makes himself known that are, that are guarded Otherwise, you know, everything would be acceptable to God in worship. Like, for example, in a worship service, you know, why don't we, um, you know, offer to him kite flying or, or other things that he hasn't commanded, right? It's, it's because he, is, he has said what he wants and anything else would be idolatrous, right? It would be adding to what God has, has required from us. So there have to, anyway, all that to say that there have to be some things that are holy and some things that are not holy. And God has particularly... Uh, made commands about the work of ministry. So you see all these commands about the work of ministry. Second Corinthians 2.17 says, uh, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Uh, peddlers of God's word, that's that's not allowed. It, you're allowed to sell other things, but peddling God's word is is not, not permitted. So there are there are distinctions made in scripture that, that support this. Um, so uh, a thought I had a minute ago uh, when we were talking about the importance of representing Christ, and this, this ties in because, you know, God, as he, as he reveals himself in Jesus Christ through the gospel, wanting everyone to focus on that gospel has set special, you know, boundaries and guardrails around how it should be treated. Um, and one, uh, one verse I really like is uh, Micah three eleven. This is the last thing I quote in the book, and I don't really explain it, uh, but it's probably worth explaining. Uh, Micah three eleven says, "Its heads give judgment for a bribe; its priests teach for a price; its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us.' So, uh, if you think about that, you've got all these Old Testament offices charging money to perform their office, right? Uh, its heads." basically like the princes, right? The rulers of the people. And the, the chief prince would be the king. Uh, it's priests teaching for a price. It's prophets practicing divination for money. These are the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And uh, and as the people of Israel were representatives of God, and as we are representatives of Christ, being under him, a royal priesthood, and being uh and speaking prophetically, you know, in the sense of bringing God's word to the to creation. Um there is this, there is this obligation on us to bring it in the same way that he would, right? Isaiah fifty-five one says that uh, the gospel is offered without money and without price. It doesn't. That verse doesn't use the word gospel, but uh, you see this later on. The whole Bible ends with this thought in Revelation um, that uh, come to the waters. They're offered without money and without price. And so, as we are representatives of Christ, who is offering this without money and without price, we as uh, prophet, priest, and kings under the prophet, priest, and king are to offer it without money and without price. So there is a, there is something set apart about the work of the gospel. Yeah. I mean, I think that those are some helpful discussions. I still, I still don't feel fully persuaded about the the boundary lines or something like that. I sure. think because when I think about uh, when you talk about when you, when you initially said the word holy, I actually thought of Pentecost. I actually thought actually of Peter when he is still trying to separate from the Gentiles and he has a vision and God says, you know, don't don't call unclean or profane what God has called clean. Um, and that's the indication that he is to to actually go and see, meet Cornelius, who's not a Jew, and to to preach the gospel to him. And he discovers that the Holy Spirit's poured out on them. And he's like, whoa, it, it also in my mind, it resonated with a book, uh, The Peace Child, which was a missionary uh, telling the story uh, about uh, a cannibalistic tribe that comes to Christ. And, and it made me think of the way that you mentioned kite. You don't use kite running or something. I forgot in the service, <laughs> but there may be cultures in this world else. in which that is actually a, an appropriate part of worship of God because of its, of its meaning, um, because of its meaning in that cultural context. And it could actually be the way that Christ is set apart as holy, you know? And I think that that's what made me think of the peace child, the, I see. the missionary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm so just, would... yeah, these are just resonances that are, that are coming up. Go ahead. Yeah, and we might we might be coming from different enough backgrounds that it's going to be too hard to hash out in a single podcast episode. But, um, but I would I would start with this. You know, God gave the second commandment not to you know not to worship Him by means of idols, 
right? And so if you ask yourself the question, was, and I assume you would agree that idolatry is wrong even today, right? That you shouldn't like make an image of God and worship it. Yeah, um, but I also think it's very subtle. I, I think that culturally it may be, it may appear differently in American culture than it does in other cultures. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you ask yourself this question, was idolatry wrong before the command not to commit idolatry was given? Right. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. would say, I would say, yes, yes, it absolutely was. And well, what was wrong with it? Like what if someone just, you know, was an artistic person and they, they, the thought that this was the good way of worshiping God. Um, the problem is that what you realize in that giving of the commandment and the fact that it, it was still wrong, even before the commandment was given, it's basically God sets the way he, he is to be worshiped. And we shouldn't be out of our own inventions and imaginations, be coming up with, with new ways of worshiping him. And so he, he sets apart the things that are holy. I also, I also believe that um, another thing we could talk about is even like the, uh, um, Lord's Day worship, right? Like I believe that Sunday is set apart for worship. I don't know if you if you also believe that, but that would be a, a good example of something that's I believe is holy. I see. Um, I think that uh, when I think when I think about history and the way our calendar has changed and everything like that, I think that there is a day set apart. But I don't know if it has to be the literal okay. Julian calendar Sunday that we do. You know that there's right. a day of rest that God gave to humanity as a gift, and that there is no like punishment where like oh you are a Sabbath breaker and you deserve death. The way that even in Jesus's day, people were saying like, what you're doing is ungodly, right? When he would have his disciples, right. you know, gather grain on the Sabbath. But there is this promised rest that is a gift for humanity that when we observe it, we receive that blessing and we're also a witness for the kingdom. And I think that through that, um, honoring, you know, keeping the Sabbath holy is something that's a beautiful gift and, and not so much something that's like, we must, you know, a law to be kept. But I do think that... Um, what, however, that form that takes, there's some, there's some, there's room there to do that, and uh, and we're just blessed in, in being able to receive that from God. Sure, right, yeah. and there, yeah, there might be a lot more there to discuss, but the, we yeah, could dive deep the, into it. But the, sure. the, I think that the other thing that you did say, though, that I do agree with you. Well, was, just just real quick, if I can oh, yeah. just throw that out there for any for any listener thinking through these things, if if you are of the opinion um, or of the of the belief that. Sunday is, is the day set apart. Like that's just one very good example of something that is still holy in the, in the modern day context anyway. Okay. So the thing that I do see as um, a really interesting connection to what you're talking about was uh, the story about simony, I think, right. Where uh, there was that magician who wanted to buy the power of the Holy spirit from Peter in the book of acts. Right. And I think that that is a really, that honestly, for me, that's the clearest indication of like the Holy, it's literally the Holy spirit that he's trying to buy the power of with human money and Peter tells him, may, may your money perish with you. Um, you know, to think that you could buy the gift of God like that. And I see that as, I think maybe this is me coming to my own conclusion based on our conversation though. It's like, there is something about you can't buy God in the same way that you can't take God's name in vain, which is not just saying like God is like a cuss word. It's like using God's presence, authority, supremacy, and then aligning yourself with it as if you are God. Right. And so right. And that that's something that is not uh, is not possible. That's wrong. Um, but the it's interesting because then if someone tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, that would be an insult to the holiness of God. If someone tries to buy the word of God, so not necessarily like human words, but like God's word in that sense, mm -hmm. right? There is something that seems very inappropriate about that. Um, yeah. And so there's I, I kind of see this this line forming for me now at that level but it's but the more and more you get into books the more and more you get into like teaching and everything it just kind of gets blurrier and gray right but there is that essence i i see yeah yeah if i can uh i i've got a couple of thoughts about that one is uh, a lot of people come away from this wondering if you know they are permitted to to purchase these uh you know this content whatever content uh that they're receiving that helps them spiritually and uh and i would say for the most part, the answer is yes, that, uh, that primarily what I'm getting at is a, an, an ethic for ministers in, in their receiving and in their charging for things. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but one of the things that I've been doing since publishing this book is going back and reading all the old, like medieval texts on simony yeah. and, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. And, uh, a lot of the phrasing they were using is actually very similar to my phrasing. And it's funny because I did some of this historical research before and I came across this stuff, but it's only having finished and coming back to it again, I'm realizing like how, how close my conclusions were to wow. their conclusions. Uh, but uh, 
yeah, one of the things they talk about is how uh, yeah, simony is selling anything or selling or purchasing anything spiritual and uh, or anything annexed to what is spiritual. So, it, and I say anything that directly attends to gospel proclamation. So it's kind of a sim- similar phrase. Hmm. And then, um, but one thing that, uh, for example, Thomas Aquinas says about about purchasing, he says because they were simony. For those who who don't know the way simony was used historically, typically it was referring to ordinations. Like if you if you laid hands on someone because they paid you money and you know you made them a bishop and you gave them you know this this authority of the anointing of the Holy Spirit to, you know, be a bishop wherever that, that was simony. Mm-hmm. Now, because of their context, they were, they were mostly concerned about people trying to purchase this, but Aquinas answers the question, well, what if you have a right to this office, but the only way that you can get it is because it's, you know, it's being held hostage by this other guy, you know, this other bishop, and he won't lay hands on you unless you, mm-hmm. unless you pay him. And he said, well, in that case, it would not be wrong for you to just go ahead and pay the bribe. Um, so I, I feel like that's the kind of the condition that a lot of us are in. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, you know, the spiritual benefit that we want to receive from these things are are not available to us anyway, but by purchase mm-hmm. and they're being held hostage. So I, I, I think we're in the clear there. It's only if um, someone, you know, wants to purchase these things, they want to exchange what is temporal for what is spiritual um, that you, you see a real violation of that, but man, I'm finding all kinds of crazy stuff and going back and uh, studying simony. You know, there was someone who uh, back in the like 1100s, uh, there was someone who charged for a, uh, for a funeral. And so the Duke of the, of Milan, he threw him, he threw him into the grave. <laughs> like, Oh, he wow. Tied, he tied him to the corpse and threw him into the pit with, uh, wow. with the corpse <laughs> because he tried charging for the funeral. Um, <laughs> that... anyway, yeah, there's all <laughs> kinds of, there's all kinds of good stuff. A- another thing that's really interesting is, and I get, I get to this a little in the book too, is yeah. you have the story of Gehazi in the old Testament where uh, Elisha has healed Naaman of his leprosy and, yep. and Naaman tries to purchase this. He tries to, he tries to give money back in return and, and Elisha says no, but his servant Gehazi comes back later and says, Hey, uh, Elisha changed his mind. Go ahead and pay us. And he does that. And so Elisha transfers Naaman's leprosy to uh, Gehazi. And so what you see in, uh, in a lot of writings too, in the middle ages is that leprosy was associated with this sin of selling, um, it was selling spiritual benefits. Mm. And, uh, and in fact, in the, um, the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, uh, there's one character and I'm blanking the summoner, the summoner. Uh, and he's described as having leprosy. And he's also described as, you know, like paying money to, to, you know, have his sins yeah. forgiven and stuff like that. And <laughs> almost mythic, a, isn't it? Yeah. It's like this, this repeated myth of like, Oh, when you try to trade in yeah. spiritual things, you end up getting a physical condition. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, one thing I find interesting too, is, you know, that, that passage that I start the book off with Matthew 10, eight, uh, Jesus, the, the full verses heal the sick, raise dead, cleanse lepers, cast out mm. demons, receive without paying, give without pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one who's giving freely is, is cleansing lepers. That's a, that's an interesting coincidence, you know, oh. that that's there. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So I, I think like, I want to, hmm, there's like two thoughts I have. One of them is, do you think that all Christians should basically work for free and why not? So in your work at Google, or uh, I know the book is free, but you're able to kind of feel like, no, it's in good conscience. I should charge for my intellectual labor uh, for my company. Uh, You know, I should charge for like a venue rental for a concert or whatever. I should charge for these things. Right. But I should not charge for um, preaching, teaching. uh, Right. Something like that. So, yeah. So uh, property is a real thing. You know, uh, there's the ninth, excuse me, the eighth commandment says thou shalt not seal, which assumes property is a real thing. Uh, You have in Acts 5 that uh, 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 Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, they could have kept their they could have kept land. the proceeds of their land. They didn't have to give it all. It was only because they lied about how much they were giving, right? Mm-hmm. It was their property to keep if they wanted to. Yeah. Because because personal property is a real thing and your labors are a real thing, you are you are permitted to charge for them. But what's going on with ministry is that the gospel isn't ours. And our own lives are, are and as we are ministering, we are essentially the employees of an employer. You know, go back to Matthew 10, Luke 10 again. Um, 
when it says the worker's worthy of his wages, the worker's worthy of his food, who is the employer in that analogy that's being given? Well, if you go back, if you go back to the end of Matthew 9 and to the beginning of Luke 10, the answer is God, because God is the Lord of the harvest. Mm -hmm. He is the Lord of the harvest, sending workers out into the harvest. And so we are, we are under his employ and we have a contract, you know, an employee contract with him that dictates how this things work. So as we're running the cash register, we're not allowed to, you know, uh, change the, uh, you know, change what's going into the cash register. That's the kind of position we're in outside of that employee, right? Outside of being a worker in his field, um, he has given us freedom to uh, charge as we would, et cetera. But when it comes to the work of ministry, the gospel is not ours to sell. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's kind of claiming possession of something that it's not really yours. Exactly. And you've yeah. received it freely. And so how could you charge for that? Exactly. Um, yeah. And Paul says in first Corinthians nine, essentially that he would be, if he were to charge for this, he would be a free agent, but he's not, he's a, he's a steward of the Lord. Yeah. So does it, does that mean then that you think that um, like biblical scholars who make their career out of studying scripture and things like that, you know, is that, is that a gray area to you or is that still, would you consider that something where they're actually taking what belongs to God and, you know, their intellectual labor then belongs to God as well. Um, yeah, great, great yeah. question. So, uh, okay, so first of all, there's some kind of biblical scholars who are just like studying ancient Near Eastern culture or whatever, right? And they're not really like expositing scripture. That's that's totally outside of what I'm talking about. Um, uh, in general, I would say that they're they're fine. The problem is a lot of these a lot of these scholars are funded by charging s- seminary students for um mm. for education right mm. and so there you are equipping them with a, a greater measure of the holy spirit you know this is this is simony right <laughs> this is mm. uh and so but the thing is most most seminaries already are funded largely by donations so really the kind of transition that would be needed to making it all all donations all co-labor uh, would not be that great because it's not like they're only funded by reciprocity now. They're half doing things right now. And really, it's just, you know, go that extra step to to get this completely funded by co-labor. And then the other thing is, uh, for example, you have journals, right? A lot of these scholars write journals. And then the journal, you know, uh, the whole model around the journal is we lock down access so that people have to pay. Now, the professors aren't necessarily getting money directly out of that, mm-hmm. you know, as they're writing articles. But this would be a good example where, you know, the advances, um, you know, our fields have made and thinking about licensing differently with journals could really uh, <laughs> uh, it could really benefit uh, evangelical journals because they um yeah, it's, you know, in tech fields, it's really easy to get access to different papers and stuff. And in theological fields, oh man, it's it's still expensive and painful. Mm. Um, so I would I would love to see you know the stuff more accessible to the people of God. Uh, there's there's a few other ways that they make money, right? They write books and they sell that to people, right? That's a that's another way, and that that way I would consider um, to be violating the Dorian principle. That instead they should you know they're already being supported in a large part by donations and grants and whatever. Um, that they should uh, use that in order to make their work freely available. That's interesting. You think the same way about Christian counseling? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Christian counseling, uh, someone in desperate need of the gospel comes to you for the gospel. Uh, We should, yeah, we should give the gospel freely. And there's an interesting thing here because my, so uh, our church is really into ACBC. We have three ACBC certified counselors. Um, uh, at our, at our church. Sorry, I'm pulling something up here. There's a, there's a quote on the ACBC website that I think shows a lot of people's wrestling and difficulty in dealing with this topic and why it needs to be studied. Um, so, uh, the Bible is clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is on the ACBC code of conduct. What's ACBC again? Uh, it stands for association of certified biblical counselors. Okay. So anyway, it's just a, a biblical counseling organization. Yeah. Uh, the Bible is clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a precious gift that should be offered without price, and that it may be necessary for ministers of Christ to selflessly serve those in their care. Biblical counselors, therefore, must seek to love their counselors in discerning whether to charge fees and how much to charge. So you have the statement that it has to be offered freely. So decide whether or not you're going to charge. <laughs> so it's a uh, I feel like this is just a, an obviously on its face contradictory statement. If it if it really ought to be offered freely, then it should be offered freely. And counselors should be supported by their churches or if their churches can't afford by 
a network of churches or there's there's no reason why we can't do this um if there's a if there's a demand for something you know there's money to make it happen so uh yeah i think that it would be a lot easier to fund these things than most people think well it's just i mean um it's interesting because you know i don't know the details historically but i believe that even the the hospital movement was started by believers to provide healthcare, physical healthcare, not like mental or spiritual, uh, for those who could not afford to be taken care of. And it began as a true charity in the sense of the word charity. Obviously, hospitals today are a business. Um, and so it's just interesting to see that evolution coming from kind of Christian history into what it is today. They're healers and in many other cultures around the world as well. But I just wondered to like, like, it does, it does sound like a hard question where if it's a difference between Christian counseling of giving the gospel and mental health and doctors who are doing physical health and just human beings as a unified whole, right? Because physical and spiritual are one. We're one. Um, it's just interesting to see there be some dividing line between paying for like hospital services versus mental health or something like that. Whereas I kind of wonder if there's something deeper there that actually um, – really does maybe inform a different a different way of doing things economically altogether right you, you understand what i'm saying like yeah yeah, yeah. no it, and yeah and that's kind of the hardest question to answer and ap applying this is you know what is the gospel and what or what is gospel ministry and what isn't gospel ministry and you know let's say yeah you've got a hospital that's started by christians designed primarily to advance the gospel rather than primarily to give care then maybe you should be giving care for free, right? <laughs> um, because uh, th then you have something that's annexed to the gospel. Um, you know, for example, uh, our church runs a food pantry, right? Uh, of course, the whole point of the food pantry is to give food away for free. But uh, the, you know, as we're doing these kind of gospel ministries, we're not charging for things to, uh, <sighs> yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess to go back, anything that tends to gospel proclamation, or as it's been historically said, anything annexed to spiritual things should not be charged for. So once you've, once you've connected it, like it would be wrong for the, the apostles to have gone out and charged for the miracles, but not the gospel, right? Or Paul, you know, for example, think about Paul. He doesn't go out and say, okay, well, you can pay me for room and board, but not for the gospel. He says, uh, he says, or he doesn't, he doesn't charge for his ship ticket. He doesn't receive food from the Thessalonians. You know, he's very clear about that in first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians. So all these things that attend to his proclamation of the gospel, he doesn't charge for. Yeah. Himself just sell tents basically and uh, make money to be able to support what he wants to do freely, independently. Right. And that's, uh, and, if, yeah. yeah. And to be clear, that's not the only way that he was, uh, that supported. he was supported, right? Um, yes, he did receive and, gifts when it was uh, co-labor. Yep, I remember reading about that in your book. Yeah, right, exactly. I think, um, yeah, so I, I don't expect that we're going to hash it all out for every single field in, in this podcast. Sure. It's just that I, I my gut tells me, like, there might, you know, what you're teaching and talking about here, it might have implications beyond just what we traditionally view as church and, and worship services and Christian counseling. It's the whole, it's, it's imagine flipping the faith and work, uh, you know, kind of merging in the way that you said that sometimes it kind of, it kind of blurs the line between the, the holy or the sacred and the, right. the common. But imagine if it, if it flips it where it's like, actually the holy is meant to pervade the common. It's meant to sanctify uh, everything else in the way that we even do it economically. I just, it, it's a curiosity. It's a possibility I'm sensing as I, as I talk about it with you. Sure. Um, so it, we don't have to we don't have to draw it all out but i will give you a chance here like you know if you were to cast vision for for what you think if you were to dream right what christianity in maybe america because we're here in america looks like and we're probably the most commercialized or worldwide uh how it could be changed if ministers of the gospel uh loved and lived this story and principle that you're advocating for what would that look like oh man uh <laughs> there's so many things to say here the uh yeah imagine if you could get the base uh the uh you know diamond package of lagos for uh you know less than a gazillion dollars <laughs> okay um you know and people would just have access to so much teaching all available you know online um yeah it's just right now all the if anybody's ever been a serious student of the bible and historical theology and things like that it, it costs a lot of money to to be that kind of student because people have intentionally 
you know, made material scarce. Or for all the software developers listening to this, let's say you want to make a Bible reading app. A lot of, I mean, a lot of us have thought about doing that, right? Like we see Bible Gateway, we're like, we could, we could improve on that, right? But to do the legwork that Bible Gateway did and getting all the licenses to display all those different Bible translations, um, <laughs> that, you know, you need like a whole team to go out and uh, seal those deals with the different publishers in order to make that happen. So, you know, even as a, even as software engineers, we can't make the cool software that we want to make for the kingdom because of uh, the difficulty in in uh, getting I, access to this content. This, this is a soapbox I have um, because um, you know how people talk about how poverty is oftentimes a uh, you know rooted in injustice. Uh, many times, I often feel like Bible poverty is also rooted in some injustice when it comes to the intellectual property surrounding the Bible. I helped with uh, Wycliffe Associates, a Bible translation organization and stuff, and I was shocked that the real blocking factor was licensing issues because you're not yes. allowed to create derivative works, which translations are. And if we had a high quality, you know, source material that was open license, it would enable translation teams all over the world to just do their work and not have to be dealing with the restrictions of the copyrights. And so that's like when I, when I, whenever I hear Bible translation, like, you know, needs and stuff, I'm always like, have they solved the copyright issue? Because that's the one thing that can unleash, you know, you don't have to control it. You can unleash the talent and creativity of God's people around the world and they can produce stuff and give it freely. And it just really goes viral like that. Anyway, I, I'm with you on this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's all these different kinds of Bible translations. A new one comes out every few years with its own innovations, but, and we don't need most of these innovations. What we really need, the innovation we really need is a, a modern, a public domain translation. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so just to just to spend a minute on that, um, you know, I talk about this in the book, but the manuscripts are, believe it or not, in a sense, copyrighted, right? These old manuscripts that are public domain, a lot of times the, the museums will uh, assert right over any digitization of, of them, right? Over any photograph of them. Now there's court precedents to say they can't do that. But, uh, but they do it anyway, and organizations comply with them because they want to keep good relations so they can, uh, you know, oh, keep digitizing okay. things. And then, uh, and then you take those manuscripts and, you know, they have variations and stuff, things spelled differently. You, you pull them together into a, a critical edition. And then people, people copyright the critical edition. Yep. Now, ideally, a critical edition is, is composed by, not by creativity, but by science, right? Like by a very scientific method of piecing together what the original text said. And if you did it perfectly right, you, you've come up with the autograph, the autograph being the original writing of Paul or yes. whatever. Yes. And so, but asserting copyright is basically conceding. We didn't do a good enough job because this is, because <laughs> this is my work, not Paul's yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then of course the translations are all, uh, are all copyrighted. It, um, there are a few older ones that aren't right, like the ASV or some newer ones uh, like the WEB, uh, the World English Bible. Uh, there are recent uh, the World English Bible is coming from a different manuscript tradition. So it, that's why I personally don't use that one. But um, but it's a it's otherwise a good translation. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, the uh, the editor of the WEB is one of the one of the um, endorsers of the book also. But, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah you were going to say something. Oh, uh, I already forgot what I was going to say. Okay, no worries. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah, so so moving on to like other things that would improve in Christianity. Um, yeah, just just that access, the ability, especially you know, as a software engineer and thinking about software engineers, for us to make all kinds of cool content. Think about all the uh, the apps you can make for worship songs too uh because right now like even to sing these songs in church you know people pay their worship tax to the ccli yeah right and they to uh to in order to sing the songs that they want to sing like that's that's pretty awful that people of god can't gather and sing the song that they want to sing without you know paying someone else for that but imagine like all the cool you know applications and things that you could do if all that all the lyrics and all the songs were freely available. It it's huge because you know my work is translation. Spiffio, we want to we, we we believe God's dream for the church is for every you know for people to be included from every language, every nation in worship together as a witness to the kingdom that's coming. And translation of lyrics is actually also not allowed under copyright law without permission from the copyright holder. Now, right. obviously, practically on the internet, people do it anyway. Yeah. But that CCLI issue is totally there still, um, and it's such a barrier to multilingual worship. In addition to the scripture copyright stuff. Right. Uh, to not be able to just like take a song, translate it, use it, distribute it so that more people can use it without having to go through all those legal hurdles and maybe financial hurdles. 
to be able to actually make that possible. And if you think about the developing world and, and global Christianity, CCLI, like in, you know, in a rural part of a small country, like, you know, across the world, it's not going to happen. Like, um, and so it, it just so it feels so antithetical a lot of way, in a lot of ways to what our professed uh, mission is as believers uh, in wanting to bear witness. And it's, yeah, it, it would be beautiful if that, if that was possible to, to remove those barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Yeah, and one last thing I'll I'll end off with, I guess, is that you think about um, you know, think about the last time you purchased a book. You know, did you feel like you were partnering with them? Did you feel like any how much joy did you feel about uh you know, giving? Probably probably very little, right? It's like paying a bill, you know? Yeah. Um I, I have a lot of joy about investments. I have very little joy about paying bills. And so imagine if, you know, purchasing content weren't really a purchase, but an investment. If you were, if you were giving to this ministry, you would be so much more inclined to pray for that person. You know, when I buy a book, I don't feel like I need to pray for this author. But when I give to a ministry, I do feel obligated to pray for this, for this ministry. I feel obligated to hold them accountable. I'm not going to keep supporting them if they if they uh start veering off course of, uh, you know, what God has called them to. And, uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of good that would come from us supporting it this way. A lot of accountability, a lot of joy in the Christian life too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for ending on that note, Conley. It was a stimulating discussion with a lot of uh, very topics that all kind of tie together nicely at the end and how we think about how we spend our money and how we also give of our spiritual gifts. Uh, in service to others. Uh, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Theotech Podcast. And if you'd like to be a co-laborer with us in uh, bearing witness to what God is doing in technology, you can do so at patreon.com slash theotech. And really appreciate all of your support. Until next time.